Well, I'm guessing the name Joshua Milton Blahi doesn't mean much to you. Blahi is from the nation of Liberia. Liberia is a coastal nation on the Pacific side of Africa, about half the size of the state of North Dakota. In 1989, Liberia entered a prolonged period of civil war. And that's where Joshua Blahi becomes a name to know. Blahi led a group of rebels in the Civil War and is probably best known for the nickname that was given to him during that time. He became known as General But Naked. Not even joking. The reasons for this nickname are that uh, he was known to lead his armed rebel group on their missions wearing only their shoes and their weapons. Blahi was handed over as a child to be trained as a pagan priest in a Liberian religious cult that held the practices such as child sacrifice. He became a trusted religious advisor as he grew to political leaders in the troubled nation, and then eventually he became essentially a warlord. It's estimated that Blahi was responsible for at least 20,000 deaths during the Civil War. He trained child soldiers. He engaged in other incredibly vile acts. Until one day when Joshua heard the gospel. He came to believe that Jesus died for his sin and everything changed. And lest we be too skeptical, this wasn't some jailhouse conversion to avoid being held accountable for his terrible actions. Joshua came to trust in Christ about seven years before the Civil War came to an end. And he left fighting, he laid down his weapons, and was soon being trained as a pastor. From general but naked to a pastor... Blahi now preaches a message of hope and joy in Christ, doing what he can to share the peace of Christ with those in his homeland. He's now been a pastor longer than he was a military leader. In recent years, there have been a couple of documentaries about his life, and while many argue that he should still be held accountable for his brutality in war, Very few question the sincerity of his life transformation. He even started an organization to help rehabilitate and care for former child soldiers. And while Joshua's redemption story is dramatic, they are all around us, aren't they? The church is littered with stories of people who have been redeemed by Jesus. Most of them will never be the subject of a documentary, and some of them will never be shared publicly at all. But just within this room, there are dozens and dozens of stories of how the gospel has transformed and redeemed lives. Today we continue in our sermon series in Galatians, and in our text for this morning we encounter a redemption story, even more uh, perhaps dramatic than the story of Joshua. This is the story of a man who was persecuting the church and ended up responsible for planting and propagating the church throughout the known world. But as you'll see, this isn't really a story about Paul, the author of our letter. 
This is a story about the gospel, about Jesus, about the good news, about the message that was entrusted to Paul. Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 11. This is God's word to us. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally known to the churches, sorry, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Lord, you are good and your word is good, inspired, and true. It is the final authority for life and faith. And so give us ears to hear what you are saying to us through your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remember from the past two weeks, there are false teachers in the province of Galatia who are seeking to twist and corrupt the message of the gospel. And last week in our text, Paul made it clear that whenever we change the gospel, it ceases to be the gospel. It is no longer good news. In the next couple of weeks, Paul will defend his ministry. He will explain why he does what he does, why he teaches and preaches what he does. But but while he defends his ministry and message, he also teaches us a great deal about how we can understand the gospel. The first sermon in the series I, I titled The Gospel Defined, but really that could be true of the first handful of sermons in this series, as Paul gives us this detailed and rich explanation in Galatians chapter 1 of the gospel, of this message that was entrusted to him. And so today, in our text, as he defends his ministry, as he gives an explanation of his passionate defense of the gospel, we're recipients of yet another really helpful description of this message that is central to who we are as Christians. Here's what we discover. First, that the gospel is not of human origin. We see this in verses 11 and 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not 
receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. This is the second time in the first 11 verses that we have seen this very theme show up. In the opening verses of the letter, Paul emphasized that he was sent by God, not by other people. And now he's saying that his message, what he is teaching and preaching, this gospel that he proclaims, doesn't have its origins with human beings. He says it was revealed to him from Jesus Christ. As I mentioned last week, it seems that Paul was being accused of preaching a gospel that was just too easy. Cheap grace that would be taken advantage of and abused. The false teachers just could not understand this grace, this good news of which he spoke. And so they demanded adherence to the law of Moses as part of the Christian life. And so Paul explains that the source of his teaching, his theology, isn't something that's picked up through long conversations in Jerusalem, but through direct revelation from Jesus when he was converted on the road to Damascus. Paul, that Hebrew of Hebrews, as he refers to himself, the former Pharisee, came to believe and confess and proclaim that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that had come before. And with his death and resurrection, a new covenant was now in place, a covenant in which God himself meets all the demands, in which Jesus fulfills all of the requirements of the covenant. And Paul's emphasis on the gospel being from Christ, not from humans, is really helpful for another reason as well. It doesn't simply establish his credibility in correcting the false teaching in these churches. It's also the source of great assurance for us today. You see, our human condition demands intervention from the outside. The last thing that we need is more human philosophy. Think about it. The highest graduate degree, essentially, that you can get in the United States is what they call the Doctor of Philosophy. We usually know it as a PhD. There are about 55,000 new Doctors of Philosophy in our nation every single year. And what do we have to show for it? We can't even tell the difference between boys and girls anymore. These philosophers aren't helping. The last thing that we need is more human philosophy. We'll, we'll never be able to redeem ourselves. We'll never be able to rescue ourselves from the inside. We need hope and good news and life and salvation from the outside. And that's the gospel. The, the gospel is the message, the proclamation, the announcement that God became human from the outside to rescue us from our sin, to bring us new and everlasting life. We are lost apart from a rescuer who comes from the outside. And so the incarnate God comes among us and does what we could never do. He rescues us. That's the gospel. That's what Paul is preaching. The gospel is not of human origin. Second, we see this, that the gospel gives all glory to God alone for our salvation. Look at verses 15 and 16. This really is the focal point of our text this morning. 
And it says this, But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. You'll notice that Paul, as he's talking about his own conversion, his own coming to faith, directs our eyes away from ourselves and on to the Lord. This is really, really helpful. And, and he does this in two ways. First, he says, God set me apart from my mother's womb. Think about those words. When we think about Paul's conversion, we're likely to think about that one day on the road to Damascus. Acts chapter 9 records it for us in verses 1 through 6. I'll read that for us. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 says, Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's what the Christian faith was called in the early days, the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. When we consider Paul leaving his old life as a Pharisee and a, a tormentor of Christians to his new life as an apostle of Christ, we likely think of it as centered on that one day, that one moment in time on the road to Damascus. But think about what Paul says in our text. Paul doesn't look at that one day as the day that everything began regarding his salvation. He looks all the way back to before he was born. Before Paul drew his first breath, God had a plan for him. God had determined how he was going to use Paul. And this is what the gospel does. It reminds us that if there is anything good within us, it's from God. That every good gift and every good deed and every good trait is a gift from God because of his mercy to us before we existed. This gospel of Jesus Christ announces that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it proclaims that before we were born, God had a plan for us. The second way that we see the gospel giving God all the glory for our salvation is in the next phrase. He says, and called me by his grace. Again, our focus is shifted from our own works, our own behavior, our own deserving, our own merit, our own achievement, which of course could never bring about salvation. Galatians is shining a spotlight on the fingerprints of God that exist all over our spiritual lives and our spiritual journey. When we're trusting in Christ, we know that it was not us who chose to seek God, but that even any sense of desire for God that is found within us is a product of God's work and his call 
and his seeking of us. There's an old hymn that some of you might remember that declares this, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him. The basis of our relationship with God is the grace of God. Paul is specific here for a reason. He doesn't just say, God called me, sort of generically. He says, he called me by his grace. This is worth our reflection, our consideration. Before his conversion, Paul's calling was one of law. He was a staunch defender of God's law. He was a teacher of the law. But, but as we will discover in the chapters ahead, the law was unable to bring salvation, and it remains so today. The law can demand, it can threaten, it can constrain. The law, Paul tells us elsewhere, can even kill us. But the law can never bring life. It can never save. It can never give freedom. In Romans, Paul talks about the things that the law is powerless to do. And so we see, even in this comment, a, a distinction forming that's going to become really important throughout the rest of Galatians, this distinction between law and, and gospel, or law and grace. The, the, this calling upon Paul's life was a gospel calling. He had tried the law thing. He had memorized the Torah. He was fluent in all of the Old Covenant regulations. He had probably strapped phylacteries to his forehead in literal obedience to Deuteronomy 11. He, he had lived a life zealous for God's law. And now, after meeting the risen Lord Jesus Christ, he came to realize that salvation was not found in the law. That salvation is by grace alone. That, that God's call upon his life was not a call to the law. It was not a life burdened by the weight of the law, but a life of freedom and joy in service to Christ, a life of grace. This distinction between law and gospel is going to be a major theme throughout Galatians in the next several chapters, and really to the end of the epistle. What else do we see in our text today? Third, we see the gospel is the revelation of Jesus. Verses 15 and 16. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased, and then hear these words, to reveal his son in me. This is, again, one of those phrases that we might be quick to just read over. But it's worth a few moments of our time. God revealed his son, Jesus Christ, in Paul. The gospel is the revelation of Jesus, the unveiling of our Lord. It's not primarily about us. It's for us. The gospel is for you, but it's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about the glory of God. It's about his love for his creation. And then this is really at the heart of what drove the apostle so passionately in his mission work. He believed that God had revealed Jesus in him but that it wasn't just for him. God was revealing Jesus through him, we might say. Paul saw himself as a vessel, as an instrument in the hands of God to be used 
for God's glory, for the good of his neighbor. This is the true and right response to the gospel. When we come to believe that Christ died for our sin, that he was raised again for our eternal life, when we believe that Jesus has forgiven us and justified us and promised us life everlasting, we no longer live for ourselves because as we'll hear later in Galatians, Christ is living in us. Christ is revealed in us and through us. The gospel is not about a better you. It's not merely moral improvement. The gospel is the revelation of Jesus. And that really leads to the next thought that I'll share with you, and that's that the gospel must be preached. Looking again at verses 15 and 16. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I noticed something this week as I read through the letter from beginning to end again. You know, I've read Galatians many, many times over the years, but there was just something that sort of jumped off the page to me this week that I I don't think I had recognized before, or if I had, I hadn't followed through and given it any thought. It struck me this week that it seemed like the letter contains an awful lot of references to preaching. And so I did a little research, and sure enough, it does. But when you look at the entire footprint of the Bible, Galatians makes up just a little over 1%. So Galatians is just a little over 1% of the Bible. Total biblical real estate, Galatians is 1%. But here's what's interesting. While only taking up 1% of the the real estate of the Bible, it it contains about 10% of biblical references to preaching. Remember our context. Paul is writing to a, a region of congregations that are in the midst of theological crisis. False teachers are perverting and twisting the gospel. And and what is the remedy, according to Paul? What, What is the answer to the present crisis? To preach the word. I want you to think about something today. If you were If you were to die today, Lord willing, that won't happen. But if you were to die today trusting in Christ and you find yourself in glory, worshiping before the throne of God, if you were to look around and survey all of those, the, the, the uncountable number worshiping alongside of you in glory today, most of them, the majority of them, would never have actually read the Bible for themselves. Think about that. 2,000 years of church history and less than 600 years since the printing press. Most worshiping in glory today, most who make up the church triumphant today, had never in their earthly life actually read the scriptures for themselves. So how did they come to faith? How did they come to believe the good news? Through the preaching of God's word. And so Paul emphasizes for these Christians in Galatia the preaching of the gospel. Now, now not everyone is called to preach, right? So, some of you would, if I told you it was your turn, would leave and never come back. That's okay. 
God hasn't called everyone to preach. But, but Christ's church must be a preaching church. And we all play a role in that, whether it's through leading worship or through making a, a warm and receptive uh, environment or through teaching the next generation or making quilts for graduates or praying for the lost and hurting in our community or inviting your friends to come and to hear the good news. We, we all play a role in the body of Christ, but, but the words of Paul about the centrality and significance of preaching the gospel echo throughout the letter. Think about the words of Romans chapter 10. In Romans 10, Paul says, How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? The gospel must be preached. The preaching and proclamation must continue to be the centerpiece of our gathered worship as the church. It must remain central to who we are. Well, the last thing that we will make note of from our text today is one that we pointed out at the beginning of the sermon, but that is worth our time as we close, and that's that the gospel redeems and transforms sinners. Look at verses 23 and 24 of Galatians chapter 1. The people who heard of Paul's ministry say, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And Paul says, and they praised God because of me. Paul tells us that, that after he received this revelation from God, he didn't go to Jerusalem to further refine and develop it. He went out and he, he started preaching it. And it was only three years later that he went to Jerusalem and met with Peter. Interestingly, Paul uses the name Cephas here in verse 18. Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter. Uh, remember, they were living in sort of a multilingual culture. He, he'll later in the letter refer to him as Peter. But here he uses that Aramaic name, Cephas. It, it's hard to say if there's meaning behind that or intentionality, but it, it is a matter of confusion. It, it does confuse people, and so I wanted to, to clear that up this morning, that when he says he went to visit Cephas, he's talking about Peter in Jerusalem. Paul stays 15 days with Peter, and then he goes about his work of, of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And what is their response? What is the report that people begin to hear? That this man who used to persecute the church is now preaching the very faith, the very message that he once tried to destroy. And this is what the gospel does. It changes lives. It transforms Sinners, it makes people into a new creation. The, the heartbeat of Christian history is God transforming sinners and using them to help others hear and believe the good news. There's a very practical sort of missional component of this as well that we would benefit from considering. And that's the reality that Jesus consistently picked the least likely candidate through whom to give us the gospel. He does it all over the scriptures and especially here. He picked the persecutor and the tormentor of Christians. The brilliant Pharisee who opposed the message of Jesus passionately. 
And, and God used him to establish the church all throughout the known world. And that's just the kind of work that God does over and over again. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes that God uses the foolish to shame the wise. That he uses the weak to shame the strong. This, this is just the way that God chooses to work. He says the first will be last and the last will be first. In order to find your life, you have to lose it. In order to be saved, you have to, your faith must be like that of a little child. Over and over again, Jesus uses the least likely in order to accomplish his mission. And never more profoundly than when he used a cross to conquer sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are never too sinful, too far gone, too old, too ignorant, too addicted, too simple, too broken for Christ to reveal himself in and through you. God has set you apart and called you through his grace in order that he might reveal his son in you so that you might join Jesus in his mission. His mission of preaching and proclaiming the good news that God loves the world and that there is salvation in Christ for all who believe. If you don't know how you have it with the Lord today, Scripture says that today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe the good news that Jesus died for your sin and he offers you his goodness and his righteousness. Find me after the service. Let's talk and pray. If you have been trusting in Christ for years, the message to us as we heard this morning in our scripture read, reading is to repent and believe the good news. We pray that God would Continue more and more to reveal his son in and through you. Believe that Jesus really is enough. That what he did really is sufficient. Ask him to give you opportunities this week to, to share that good news in word and in deed with, with those that he places in your path. That God may be praised because of you and me. Let's pray. God, you set us apart before we were born for your purposes. And you have called us by your grace. And so we do repent of our sin and our unbelief and our selfishness and our apathy. We confess that we are quick to be distracted and find our identity and our hope in so many places other than in you. And so we thank you for this gospel that we have received this morning. For the good news that your son, Jesus Christ, has done it all. That there is nothing that we can do to improve upon what Jesus has done for us. And so God, help us to believe. And Lord, as we receive that good news again today, we pray that you would truly reveal your son in and through us that through us others might find this good news and believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.